Hello everyone and welcome to Without a Mouse, the podcast where we watch and review the obscure and forgotten live-action Disney movies on the hunt for a hidden gem. My name's Tim and I am on my own again in the studio today. Um, Chris, he's not poorly this time, but he's had been a really, really busy week at work. Um, they've had him travelling all over the country, so he's decided to have a bit of a breather tonight and uh, stay at home. Uh, but I'm not on my own because, again, we're joined by... A very, very special guest today. Um, we've got somebody on the inside. <laughs> he is the voice of Kai in Frozen 1 and 2. He was the co-director of the 2011 Winnie the Pooh movie, story supervisor on Brother Bear, director and official Disney villain from Meet the Robinsons, and currently working at Disney Television Animation. It is Stephen Anderson. Hi, Stephen. Hey, how's it going, Tim? It's going great. I'm so glad that we're finally here having our little chat today. <laughs> yeah, me too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it feels like ages since we uh, sorted all this out, doesn't it? But we're I finally know. here. Yes. <laughs> Lots of rearranging and scheduling clashes, but we've finally made it. Yeah. So last week you said that you had to rearrange last minute because you were in the recording booth all day. Was that Which side of the microphone was that on? Uh, so that was, uh, I was on the directing side, cool. uh, because we are recording voices for a show I'm working on for Disney plus, uh, that will be coming out in 2011, uh, excuse me, uh, 2021. Uh, so there's a while to wait, but, um, but yeah, we're in full production on that. Yeah. And what is the show called? The show's called Monsters at Work. It's a, a sequel slash spinoff series of Monsters Incorporated. Um, a 10 episode season that will, uh, as I said, begin sometime in spring of 2021 on Disney plus. Awesome. So yeah. was it, was it the actual, um, the actual casting for recording or is it still in the development phase at the moment? Uh, no, it was cast. Yeah. Oh, wow. We, um, we've kind of, we, like a lot of times we do what we call scratch recording, which is just the temp temp dialogue as placeholder for when we actually cast the real actors. But since we're going at such a such a clip and the <laughs> cast has already been cast, we're skipping the whole temp dialogue um, step and going right to, to full-on production recording. So, yeah, it's, uh, it was the real thing. Awesome. Yeah. It's brilliant to have somebody, as I said earlier, on the inside kind of, even though, you know, you, you work for the company, you're a big Disney fan yourself, aren't you? Yes. Yes, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. You kind of have a similar area of, of fascination as we do which is this kind of the forgotten years of disney yeah the sort of you know the 70s 80s i was trying to think today i can't remember if this film in particular if this is pre or post the eisner area i guess it's kind of on the cusp isn't it yeah so so eisner and katzenberg started in i believe it was september of 1984 yeah the uh the Disney that I grew up with was the seventies and, and I guess most of the eighties. Um, and that's, wasn't necessarily the most glamorous or dare I say sexy time in the Disney company's history, <laughs> but because that's what I know and that was my nostalgia or that's the nostalgia I have, you know, um, I kind of, I kind of love that time period for, um, just for what it is. And it's also just real fascinating as far as the evolution of the company and, and all the stuff that was going on in the company between 
you know, 66 when Walt Disney passed away to 84, 85 when Eisner and Katzenberg came in and turned the company around, that more or less 20 year span uh, was a huge, it was just a huge, uh, let's say identity crisis for the, yeah. <laughs> for the, for the company. You know, they're really going through a lot in terms of what is a Disney movie? What is a Disney company? You know, as Hollywood was changing, how were they going to change or were they going to change? Um, yeah. So it was really, it's a really fascinating time. Obviously as a kid, I didn't know that was really going on, but now looking back on it, uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting. So yeah, the film that we've watching this week is called baby secret of the lost legend. It's one that I'd never heard of. Um, and I assumed that nobody else that I knew would have, but uh, as I told you yesterday, when we had a quick chat, I tweeted um, the, uh, the very first image of the film, which is a bit of text, and straight away, two of uh, well, one of the guys from our network, Paul, he knew it straight away, and my friend Grace also figured it out just from the wow. f- single image. But as I say, I, this wasn't a film that I was even aware of ever. Yeah, this is one of the ones that could hopefully be a hidden gem. We'll have to wait and see if we both agree on yeah. that. Um, so there's a f- few questions that we always ask uh, guests when they first come on. So, I mean, we've kind of s- discussed it already, but on a scale of Chris to Tim, where would you put yourself on the Disney fanatic scale? <laughs> I would say probably uh, would higher definitely... than me, maybe. <laughs> well, I would definitely say I'm, I'm towards, I'm, I'm towards you. Uh, it's interesting because I there's a there's two very different Disney's in my head. There's the Disney from, um, you know, there's Walt's era and up through the '80s, let's say, and then after I went to Cal Arts in 1988. So then that's when I started getting I started meeting people that worked at Disney, started learning about animation, started getting into the industry. So then Disney sort of took on a different meaning uh, at that point because it was. I don't quite know how to articulate it, but it was, I wasn't just looking at Disney as a, as a fan. I was looking at Disney as, as a student, as a a member of the industry, and then, and then eventually as an employee. Uh, So the, my, my feelings are a little more complex than that. So I, I would say like my, my fandom is for uh, Walt's era up through the, the eighties, let's say. And then I look at the rest of, the Disney product as, I don't know, a little more complexity than that. I don't yeah. know if that makes any sense. but Well, I was actually born in 1988, uh-huh. um, to put a time scale on it. So the bit, the, the, the era of Disney that you're more of, have a complex, more complex relationship with is obviously the era that I'm actually really nostalgic for. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Especially in the nineties. So some of the films that you'll have been working on, um, are, are actually part of my, my nostalgia for this company, my fandom, my childhood. So right. that's 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 a really cool dynamic it's, to have. Yeah. yeah, that's very cool. I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> Kirsty, <laughs> when I was reading out um, your credits a while back, Kirsty got really excited to find out that you'd worked on uh, The Emperor's New Groove because that is her, <laughs> that is her yeah. favorite. We were talking about her... Um, her Mount Rushmore, and she had Kronk on, on that. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's awesome. So, yeah, speaking of Mount Rushmore, we ask all our guests um, what would they have as their four uh, figureheads if they were to build a Disney-themed Mount Rushmore? Yeah. So, yeah, so It's my... a harder question than you think when you have it to... It is. 
And it's a great question too. It's a really great question. I'm glad that's a really smart question to ask people. Well, I wish uh, I could take credit for it, but I stole it off a friend's podcast. So. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, I won't tell anybody. <laughs> uh, well, the first character that comes to mind for me is Elliot from Pete's Dragon, just because, yeah. uh, again, it's like, I don't think Pete's Dragon is a great movie, but there's I have such an affinity for it because I was seven years old when it came out, and I was so excited for the movie, and something about that character really makes me very happy, and I, I draw him a lot on in... I do a lot of fan art, I guess, if you will, that I post on social media, and he's just really fun to draw. Well, that's kind of how it's through Elliot we kind of connected because there was yeah. a picture you did where I think it was over Halloween when um, you did a picture of Elliot dressed as Pete. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and I thought that was awesome, and I, and I remember liking that picture, and then obviously following you from there, and then see after you know having a bit of a chat and seeing how ace your pictures were and then suddenly look you know looking at your profile and being like oh christ christ this guy works at disney (laughs) (laughs) yeah and he's talking to me (laughs) (laughs) no it's great um so definitely elliot would be number one i would say probably number two character that i also draw a lot it's the reluctant dragon uh which is also maybe a little bit of an obscure uh, Disney film, animated film from the 40s. Yeah, it's but, one that we still haven't watched yet, so it's it's on yeah. my radar. <laughs> the the it's well, there's a so there's a live action. Basically, the the film itself is a documentary about the making of animation at Disney. But then within that, there's a short called The Reluctant Dragon, and that short to me is just one of my favorite Disney films of all time. There's just something about it, and the animation's really great, simple, and and it's very comedic. There's something about the tone of it that's a little bit different. It almost feels a little more, I don't know if it's the right way to say it, but almost more Monty Python to me than than the typical Disney kind of uh, humor. At any okay. rate, I would say those two guys. And then rounding that out, probably my next favorite film. I mean, I have a lot of favorite Disney animated films, but I would then say probably Ichabod Crane and Mr. Toad. Just because <laughs> I, I also love... Those two shorts, uh, those are, I can just always go back to those two shorts and they never get old. I, I just, I see more and more new stuff and cool stuff in them every time I watch them and they just, they just feel evergreen to me. And I also like to draw those characters. So, so that would be my four, maybe a little obscure, but no, it's good. I'm an obscure kind of guy. (laughs) That's when you know a true fan when they're getting those deep cuts. (laughs) Yes. So. Um, yeah, the film, Baby Secret of the Lost Legend, um, the title doesn't really give very much away. Like, you don't <laughs> see that and know what this is going to be about. I, I certainly didn't when you first uh, first suggested it. Yeah. Um, so what made you pick this film for us today? Uh, well, number one, you guys have done a lot of the films already that my brain immediately went to. So <laughs> then I, you, you made it a little bit more uh, challenging for me to pick a film. Uh, and then I thought this one... It's quite a curiosity in that it is, as we said before, it was part of that effort for the Disney Studios to kind of redefine its image and to kind of recalibrate what a Disney movie is and how how can they compete with the rest of what Hollywood is doing. Because for <laughs> most of that post-Walt period, they were they just kind of insulated themselves and they just kept doing the same thing over and over again. 
while the rest of Hollywood was changing in the seventies, they were, it was going towards the, the, um, you know, the new Hollywood, the young Hollywood movie brats of yeah. De Palma and Scorsese and Coppola, Lucas and Spielberg, all those guys. And then in the, and then by the late seventies into the eighties, it was becoming more of the blockbuster Jaws, Star Wars, Raiders, that kind of stuff. So so Disney was really trying to figure out how to, okay, how do we fit in or again, or, or do we even want to fit in? Do we want to just keep doing our, our little house style and, and that's what we do. Or do we want to try to redefine ourselves? Yeah. You can tell that there's, it's almost, it's not quite what I mean, but they're kind of, you can see them clutching at straws as to, you know, there's an element in this film of grabbing little bits and pieces of different kind of genres almost and then yeah. like smushing it all together and seeing what sticks kind of thing you can you can tell it's from come from a studio that's in flux isn't it yeah exactly they're they're trying to not be too uh pg in a way <laughs> <laughs> or i guess pg13 had happened by this point but but at the same time they want to be pg or pg13 because that's what everybody that's what audiences are were going to at that point. So yeah. you can feel, you know, one foot in one foot in one place and one foot in the other place, I think. It's interesting that they chose this film to be under the, the touchstone umbrella rather than a straight up Disney film. Yeah. Um, and I think again, I think that comes from the kind of trial and error aspect of it. Like let's not put our you know, let's not put the Disney name on it unless we're really sure that this is gonna this is gonna work. And, right. and and also, as you say, there there is a bit of uh, more risque content in this that you probably wouldn't expect from a, a film branded as Disney. <laughs> right. At the uh, same time, there's you know cute little baby dinosaur playing with a butterfly like Bambi. So <laughs> you know, again, it's that it's that okay. What what is this? Is you know what is this movie? It's sort of caught between two extremes. By picking this film, you're ending our '90s streak because. Uh, <laughs> We've actually done uh, four 90s films in a row, which ah. we did Muppets Treasure Island. Then we did the 1999 remake of Annie. Then Meet the Deedles. Then David Lynch's The Straight Story. So, Oh, it, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. I forgot Straight Story was a Disney movie. I totally forgot about that. Well, yeah, I had, again, it was one that I was had absolutely no rec- uh, awareness of until Chris mentioned it. Um, yeah. so that, that's really fun. Uh, that episode comes out in February, so keep oh, an great. eye out for that one. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I guess all we've got left to do now is, is get into the film. 1985, a startling event takes place in remote West Africa. Two of the hunters found it upriver. And the search is on. Where? Where upriver? That's the wrong place. How much further? What is going on? We'll find out in due course. We're going to need a boat and an escort. Look up there. The search for something that couldn't possibly exist. But it does. It's a hatchling. Mm. Look at you. A brontosaurus hatchling. I don't know what you're talking about. I read your notes, my dear. There it is! That is the most valuable thing on earth! Go! 
George and Susan are trying to protect her. Dr. Kvyat will do anything to capture her. And Mom just wants her back. Baby. Secret of the Lost Legend. Get him out of here. Get him out. Oh, off my toe. So we get, as I said earlier, we get an opening text box um, explaining the backstory of where we're going with this movie, which is basically that um, in the jungles of West Africa, there are tribes that believe that there are huge reptile-like creatures out there. Obviously, straight away, we're kind of getting the hint of maybe a dinosaur involved. Mm-hmm. And our opening scene, we get a, a shot of a cityscape, and straight in there with some tits and guns, is what I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, yeah, considering I was going into this expecting a Disney film, pretty much the opening shot is um, of like a big uh, African street, festival and carnival um with lots yeah. of ladies with no tops on lots of men carrying rifles around um lots of traditional uh costumes and things going on really interesting right. visually but um it, it kind of tells you straight up this isn't your, your this isn't your grandma's disney film <laughs> <laughs> right and it's so funny to me because uh in any if if this movie came out under any other studio banner you would probably never blink an eye at the at the at the boobs that we see at the beginning. <laughs> but the fact that we all know, even though it's just touchstone, we all know this is a Disney movie. It's funny how that completely puts it all into a different context, you know? Yeah, and it, you're right. You wouldn't blink an eye at it normally because it's clearly like, um, you know, it's not a staged festival. They're obviously shooting around yeah. a, re- a real festival. It's all very authentic. Um, yeah, but it's it's just at the very beginning of a Disney film, <laughs> and yeah. then. And then from here, we um, see two white men in some uh, linen suits. So, you know, they must be the important ones in this scene. That's right. Because <laughs> the white men are always the important ones. <laughs> yep. Especially it's, in the 80s. Yep. Um, and they're both old will, with beards. So that right. that kind will, of... Sorry, you go. <laughs> no, no, sorry. I just wanted to back up really quick to that opening, uh, opening uh, text box. Because to me, I don't know if you're much of an aficionado of classic Disney theme parks. But to me, that is the Epcot Center font. Oh my God. Yeah. I thought that as well. (laughs) (laughs) And it's such a weird choice because that's, I don't know. Even the, it's not really the title of the film comes up in the same font as well, isn't it? It's like, yeah, because it doesn't really have anything to do with the film. You you want something of a more like, I don't know, kind of gritty, Indiana Jones style. Um, yeah. Very interesting to see today. Um, I saw the box art for the Blu-ray of this film. And oh, yeah. the the logo that they have on it now is an absolute rip-off of the Jurassic Park logo. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's red and yellow in a crescent with a silhouette of the dinosaur. Oh, you're kidding. It oh, is, my gosh. It is so blatant rip-off. But obviously, <laughs> it, it, it at least tells you what this film's about. Like, yeah. Um, so it kind of works better than what they're using. Um, yeah. Yeah. So one of our um, beardy white men goes straight <laughs> ahead and stabs another one of them. So again, yeah. we get we get our first blood straight off the bat in a Disney movie. Murder. Yeah, in cold blood. 
And yeah. basically, he's uh, it's one scientist who's stealing the papers of another scientist. And as he rifles through them, he sees an image uh, kind of very reminiscent of, you know, the footage you see of Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster. But this is clearly a Brontosaurus. So we know straight away we're looking at, we're defo after some dinosaurs in this film. Yeah. Then from there, we go straight to... Uh, a bit of baseball <laughs> <laughs> in the in the jungle in a clearing. There's a camp set up, which we learn is an archaeo- archaeological dig, um, where the, one of the main characters, George, is teaching the locals to play baseball, um, and he gets a telephone call from his uh, bosses back home because he doesn't actually work for the dig. It's his wife Susan that works on the dig. He's actually a sports commentator and has been offered a job back home. Um, don't really know what the Plot, what this plot point is for it doesn't really go anywhere but i think it's kind of just no. to establish that this guy is your adventurous i suppose if it's what disney's trying to say is their indiana jones of the film maybe yeah uh but whether or this it's not very effective <laughs> this guy <laughs> yeah it, all, it this one feels a little bit if you're familiar with the movie romancing the stone also just because of the love story it feels like tonally a little bit like that as yeah. well yeah yeah, and almost like, oh, this is the this is the um, the wisecracking American dude. He because all Americans play baseball, absolutely, and uh, you know, and they would always teach the uh, the natives how to play baseball. Um, it's kind of yeah, it feels it's almost like Disney have done a sort of almost a a, a racial stereotype of their own race. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yes. it's. Uh... <clears throat> I don't really like George as a character. They they're clearly going for that wise cracking uh, American macho guy, but he comes across as a bit of a knob most of the time. Yeah. And then we meet his wife Susan, who believes she's found a brontosaurus vertebrate, and she's showing um, it off to the head of the dig, who is one of our who is the evil beardy guy from earlier, who's yep. I'm absolutely terrible for remembering what his name was so i just put him down as baddie most of the time in my notes um <laughs> and it's kind of clear that he reckons it's a brontosaurus bone but he fobs her off a bit and tells her that it's um it's a giraffe neck so she's a bit disappointed in that um and she leaves and with you know like all disney villains our bad guy needs some kind of um lame sidekick to come and <laughs> follow him around and that's in the form of and um, this guy is quite a well-known actor over this side of the pond julian fellows yeah. um i don't know if you knew but he's now the writer of, and creator of the downton abbey series yes yeah so and uh academy award winner for uh it's at Gosford Park, I think. A few, yeah, yeah. Quite a few years ago, yeah. But um, you don't. It's very rare you see him actually acting in anything anymore. He was really big. Um, his most prominent role in the TV over here that I remember him from as a kid. He was in a show called Monarch of the Glen, which was about uh-huh. crazy rich guys in Scotland. <laughs> I see. And he pl- he played like a bumbling idiot. Well, not a bumbling idiot, a posh idiot. I mean, they're pretty. Yeah, he's pretty also similar. kind of a. He's a stereotype. Too that kind of fussy, the fussy uh, Englishman, you know, just that it feels very much like a 
He's a cartoon character. Well, yeah, sure. typical adventure movie, all your bad guys are British. Right, right. <laughs> Something will also kind of that also that thing of I feel like it's kind of a Disney thing for villains as well, where they begin you begin and you you know we introduce the character the villain as a colleague or a friend, and then we realize they're up to no good. Yeah, we realize there's nefarious uh, dealings behind the scenes. So they fob, as I said, they fob Susan off, so she leaves, um, and then. Uh, Julian Fellows' character, I think he's called Nigel, he reveals that <laughs> they're going to um, a place called Batiki um, because of Susan's research, essentially. They reckon that's where they're going to find a Brontosaurus, but they're not letting her in on it, basically. they want This other guy wants all the fame for himself. And I was trying to find out... Um, I'm pretty sure it's Batiki that they call it, and I've tried to do a Google search to see if this was a, a real uh, place or just fictional, mm. and I couldn't find anything anything that's actually a real place called that. So I think it's mm. I think there's a bit of uh, poetic license going on there. <laughs> yeah, could be. And are you familiar with the actor playing the bad guy, Patrick McGowan? No, he didn't come. He didn't seem familiar to me personally. He, uh, I never saw it, but he was in a a show in the '60s, a very popular show called The Prisoner. Oh, I've heard of it. Yeah, kind of a science fiction suspense uh, show. Um, was also in a Disney film in the '50s, I think, called Doctor Sin. Ooh. Or it's called the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh, or sometimes called Doctor Sin, alias the Scarecrow. Right. Well, uh, which was also kind of like a Robin Hood type type uh, story, but but McGowan played this doctor who would dress up like a, a scarecrow and to scare all the other instead of like robbing from the from the bad people, he would dress up as a scarecrow and scare them. <laughs> I forget the exact story, but it's it's really worth watching because. Uh, the story itself is is tonally it's very it was from sixty three so this was when Walt was still alive yeah and uh, it's a little bit darker than than a lot of what he had done uh, well a lot of Walt's material yeah um, so if you're ever I don't know it's it's worth it was a it was a TV show in the states and then I believe they cut it all together it was like three part TV show and then they cut it together into a feature and I think it was released in Europe as a feature. Oh, well, it'll... But so, uh, McGowan has a Disney history. Yeah. We tend to find that on a lot of these that we've watched is like the... It tends to be the the main villain is the person who's got the, the best credits and the most esteemed... <laughs> the, the most esteemed actor. Um, right. Yeah, but that, that one you were just talking about, um, obviously a legitimate choice for this uh, podcast another time. <laughs> yes. So we'll, I, well, and... I actually think it's good. So maybe, maybe if you're going to do good movies, yeah, we'll, we'll have to give it a spin and see. That's it. We're, <laughs> we're we're trying to find a good one. We're just really struggling. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll work on that. There's some good ones. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> so yeah, so they're they're planning to leave without uh, letting Susan know that they're going with her research. Then we cut to a a bar in in the evening with Susan and George and. Um, She's she's basically saying that she's she's pretty much positive that that bone belonged to a brontosaurus, and uh, they have a kind of 
back and forth, a little bit of a conversation where basically George is trying to get Susan to settle down and have loads of kids with him, which is uh, a very kind of 80s uh, view of (laughs) what a couple should be up to. Yes. And on theme, right? The title is called Baby. Yeah. Do you know what? I was only thinking a few minutes ago. um, Yeah, we've got the main dinosaurs called Baby. That was the same name as the dinosaur in the TV show Dinosaurs. Do you remember that from the 90s? Not the mama, 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 not the mama. You do that one more time and I'm going to throw you across the room. Not the mama! Yeah, the, it was I just... I do remember it, it was, yeah. the, They just called it The Baby. That was ah. that was one of my favourite shows as a kid. That's funny. You, I guess, you were probably a little yeah. too old for that when it came out. I missed. Yeah, I, I do remember it. I don't think I watched it, but um, <laughs> yes, I know what you're talking about. That's right. I do remember that, yeah. And you say, I'm baby, gotta love me. Right. <laughs> yeah. I always think that was a Disney production, but I, it, I don't think it was, was it? It was... I don't, I don't know. I can't even think who it, who it was. Because was that around when the first the first go around with Henson, the Disney company? So maybe oh yeah, that's a point. Maybe that yeah, was a Disney was. product. Yeah, it would have been Disney by that time, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, might have been. Shame it's a series, or I could have covered it for the show. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yes. Yeah, so then the next morning, um, they're all saying their goodbyes because obviously Susan's not going on the dig anymore, and George is going back home to his job. Um, and the old, uh, our buddy says that he's going to give everybody the best uh, references when they get home. Uh, Julian Fellows, who I'm just going to keep calling Downton Abbey from now on, I think. Um, <laughs> he he had a wicked shirt in this scene, which I wanted to point out because uh, he's got a like a like nice loose fitting Hawaiian style shirt, but it's just a, a map of I think it was California or somewhere like that. But uh, oh yeah, but yeah, oh yeah. Some really good togs. This guy looks pretty, pretty funky. <laughs> Even if he do- he doesn't act like the character doesn't fit his cool clothes in this scene. I don't think he seems a bit. He seems a very, fu- as you say, very fussy and stuck up British guy. And then he's got some really jazzy clothes on. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe I shouldn't underestimate him so much. I think the costume department found that one item and were like, "By God, we are going to get this into this film <laughs> wherever we can." And this is the only place we've got for it. <laughs> I didn't even notice that was a map. That's pretty that's sharp of you to see that. Uh, yeah, I'm always looking at costumes and things like that. Nice. So, yeah, they said their goodbyes. Um, and then the baddie says that um, one of the doctors from the Red Cross uh, wanted to speak with Susan. And it turns out that in a remote village um, nearby, there's been an outbreak of Staphylococcus or food poisoning because the natives have been eating an unidentified animal. And essentially, obviously, you know, in a in a cut off village, this virus is not n- known in the area. So for some reason, it's suddenly been introduced to this village. And so maybe she should go and help out with that, which she agrees to. This guy from the Red Cross shows Susan one of the bones from the unidentified animal, which she then matches up with her giraffe, supposed giraffe bone. So she knows for a fact that um, this other guy was lying to her, and that she was right. Yeah. So at this point, at this point, when you were watching the movie, do you remember how you were feeling about it? You didn't like, you don't like the main guy, which I get. Yeah. Uh, but like, as far as the story, how did you feel about it at this point? Um, 
I always find it very difficult with the very beginning sort of establishment of a plot it, when I have uh-huh. when I'm watching it with a notebook in my hand because yeah. it's so difficult to know what I'm supposed to be making notes on, what's not going to be important, who everybody is. Um, but right. and, and I think that does sway my opinion. But at the same time, I thought this was a bit boring so far. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah, yeah I, I'd already decided that I didn't like George. I'd already... Yeah. The acting's quite naturalistic. It's not very big or expressive. Um, a lot of the lines are kind of mumbled, which is which is quite... You know, it kind of feels like it's more of a drama than anything else at this point, I thought. Right. Yes, we've had yeah. a bit of murder, but it's not nothing's been too over the top yet. So right. I thought it was going to be quite a straight film. Yeah. Until we get to our dinosaur later on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's interesting with the cast. So uh, a couple of months ago, I, I had interviewed the producer of this movie. Oh, really? I've also been kind of working on a a history project of my own about this time period. Uh, and so he had, he, he had a really interesting comment about casting. Cause he said for the, for the studio, this movie to them was about the special effects. So that yes. was, that's where they wanted to put everything, you know, all their money with. So they didn't, they weren't, that meant they weren't going to go after any kind of big stars. Yeah. So just, it's just interesting because they're good. I think, I think it's a, you know, other than the way the character is rendered, which I totally get, I get that he's not as super appealing as he could be. <laughs> it's a pretty good cast, certainly at the time. So the guy that plays George, William Cat, at least over here in the States, was pretty, pretty well known because he was on a TV show called The Greatest American Hero. Right. I don't know if you've ever heard of that show. Um, I don't think I have that one, no. It was a comet, comedy show about... I. I I have to confess, and a lot so a lot of and a lot of people will probably get on my case for for this, but I never actually watched the show. <laughs> but it was really popular, and it was about this every man who becomes a superhero, he gets superpowers, and the whole thing was a sort of a comic superhero show, and that was really popular. So he was for for the studio to cast him seems like a smart move, at least at this time, yeah. because he was pretty well known. Uh, on TV. And I believe, and yeah, Sean Young had done Blade Runner at this point. Yeah. So they're not big names, but they're, they were known yeah. for the most part. back then. Well, it's interesting um, saying that, you know, for Disney, it was very much about the technology and, and getting all the effects um spending the money on that. Cause you sent me, didn't you, a, a video on YouTube that was um, a, a, a clip that was a behind the scenes from the Disney channel. Yeah. From this yeah. this time, and uh, it, it, the the whole sequence that they they spend on this particular film is completely about the special effects, isn't it? Yep. Uh, yep. They're basically showing off how the how high tech the uh, the animatronic for the Brontosaurus is, and showing the uh, one of the uh, actors inside the the suit and everything. Yeah. And uh, and. The, and one thing the producer said, uh, sorry to interrupt, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, like, um, going back to sort of uh, Disney kind of struggling to know who their kind of market is and things at the time, like, considering, that especially this was on the Disney Channel, so it's very much, you know, it's behind the scenes, but it's for kids. Like, this whole sequence is incredibly dry 
and it's just <laughs> obviously yeah. it's 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 the experts that are working in the department without any kind of uh interviewer or anything to kind of jazz it up it's just very like this is what we're working on right now kind of thing yeah it's not very uh kid friendly as such yeah you would almost think they're working on like a a documentary about dinosaurs they were going to do some recreations of dinosaur scenes or something like there's no sense that it's a it's an entertainment yeah it could <laughs> all, it could be all. an internal <laughs> pitch at disney for um for trying to greenlit the project kind of thing like yeah yeah <laughs> it's very straight well and the producer was saying just a, another quick thought on that he was this apparently the studio disney was very insistent that all the effects be done in house yeah and and you know at that point, this is a 80, what, three or 84 or something. ILM had been established. There were other effects houses, you know, special effects were, a, were now an industry yeah. to their own. Yeah. And so they could have gone probably anywhere <laughs> to get the effects done. And they, but they insisted on doing it in-house, which at one time or another may have been the best choice because Disney was always known for being the leader in special effects. Yeah particularly during Walt's time. But then as, again, not to repeat myself, but as Hollywood is changing, the industry is changing. Everybody outside of Disney now revolutionized special effects and took what Disney developed and built on it and made new things. Disney was still doing things in the old way. So I can't help but wonder. Now, granted, obviously we didn't have, you know, Jurassic Park technology back then. but Yeah what would this movie have been? And I'm getting ahead of ourselves in terms of the effects, but what would this movie have been if they had gone to ILM to do the effects or they had gone to, you know, I don't know, Douglas Trumbull or Richard Edlund or who, who knows, any of those people. Yeah, it's, um, a, it's a weird kind of dead zone between kind of your Star Wars, your ILM effects coming in, but then also pre-CGI like CGI digital. So... Yeah. But at the same time, these effects kind of almost look like uh, going back to your 50s kind of God- yeah. kaiju Godzilla movie almost at, yeah. in places. Yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. So next scene, they're in their bedroom, our young couple. And George is trying to suggest that they stay. Uh, well, no, sorry. Susan says that they should stay an extra two days so they can uh, see what's going on at this village. Um, and... Obviously, George isn't very happy about this, um, so she gets a bit mardy about it and decides to leave on her own. So she's shown to be quite a sort of headstrong character, quite a bit more likable than George, I thought. Um, But she leaves him a note on the (laughs) bed to say that she's left and off she goes and she leaves in a helicopter. So the next day, George tries to charter a plane, which isn't going to happen. So the only plane that's available is um, basically a... I don't know what you call it. Is it an aquaplane or a river plane that, you know, can land on the wa- land and take off on the water? Yeah. Kind of like something out of Tailspin. That's a nice Dis- Disney <laughs> reference there. There you go. That's good. <laughs> um, and I was trying to figure out who, because I, I was sure I knew who the, uh, the pilot <laughs> was. And again, yeah. it was my friend Grace on Twitter who pointed out it is, of course, um, Padme security guard, Captain Panaka <laughs> from episode one. Yeah. So that was pretty unexpected. It is very unexpected. And um, yeah, so he is agrees to take George to this village and 
they're moaning about he's moaning about susan to the pilot saying about how she's headstrong she doesn't want to have his babies and all of this um and i actually clipped out the reply that captain panaka gives and i put it on instagram uh and twitter because i was so surprised and his response is if it was my wife i'd whip the bitch (laughs) amazing (laughs) that's harsh yeah a little bit I don't know. How- it seems even harsh for the 80s. Well, I, don't know. well, I did think not. that. I don't know if it was supposed to be, you know, look how backwards all these African people are. I don't know if that was the in, in the intention, but it was a bit it was a bit much, to be honest. <laughs> well, even just just moments before that, when uh, Susan takes off in the plane, uh, George rides a motorcycle to try to try to stop stop her before she takes off. And when he misses her and the plane flies off. He turns around and rides his motorcycle off screen and he yells, bitch. <laughs> I feel. And even that's like, if you didn't like George before, <laughs> hmm, I don't know. I feel, I feel like the word. And then right on the heels is this. So I, don't know. I feel the word bitch is very uh, 80s movie in general. Like it's a yeah. very 80s thing to just shout out. That's true. And then again, keeping with the, the very family friendly vibe, we arrive at the village and see lots of corpses in body bags. <laughs> yes. Um cuz they're having a funeral sem- <laughs> they're having a funeral ceremony. Um I say body bags, we're not talking plastic ones, it's all uh cloth. Right. Um and the chief is in the one of the huts and apparently he's preparing to die cuz he's not he's got the virus as well. They're showing him a book of animal pictures to try and get him to pick the right picture, but then he draws a brontosaurus in the dirt. Which I kind um, of think, I kind of, there's something about the scene I kind of like. It, feel, it feels like there's a good, I like the way the information is slowly revealed to us. It's done in an interesting way because he's drawing the picture. It's visual. Yeah. Know. Yeah, it's a, it's visual storytelling rather than just chatting all the time. Yeah. Which is what I was worried from the earlier scenes might end up being the case. So, right. yeah, from, from the point where we leave the archaeological dig, it kind of does it does get it does get going this film i think yeah i feel like in general like if you just sort of isolated the beats of the story it's not bad it's it's like again say what you will about whether you like the characters or not cuz i agree maybe the characters aren't aren't as winning as they could be but overall i feel yeah. like okay it's 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 uh, peaking my interest absolutely i was definitely and i want to see where this is going Exactly. That's how I was. Yeah, it was. It, you could see we were revving up and going in the right direction. So I, I was on board at the, at this yeah. point. And then we go back to the dig briefly because Downton Abbey's getting Mardi because he's heard <laughs> where Susan is. So they know that they need to get there quick because that's where Susan is. And so obviously they think that that's probably where the Brontosaurus is as well. Uh, Susan was told at the hut that the uh, the village's hunters found the carcass dead upriver, so that's where they go to look for it. But the carcass is gone. Then Captain Panaka, he uh, he rents them uh, his communication equipment, um, which I assumed was just a two-way radio, so they could talk to him. But later on, it's it's revealed that it's basically a tracker that they could use if they find the Brontosaurus, right. um, and they give him a guide who instantly disappears. He uh, escapes on a boat. Because he's obviously a bit scared of trying to find dinosaurs, and this is where we 
and we set up his catchphrase here, right? Captain Panaka's yeah. catchphrase. No Which is, no problem. problem. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, he gets back in his ship and flies it off to save Padme somewhere else. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And then we get this really weird... Yeah, so, as I said, the their guide that they're given, he rows away. And there's this very, very awkward shot where um, they're just standing by the river... George and Susan staring at, at literally nothing, doing nothing, mm-hmm. just just standing still for a good three or four seconds, which doesn't sound like much, but obviously in a movie it could be quite a long shot. And then Susan just kind of goes, oh, look over there. And then we see the guide leaving. Right. <laughs> it, just, it, it was very, very stilted, that bit, which yeah, made me... I, actually, I, I laughed out loud when I saw it. <laughs> It's like they're I, waiting for their cue. I wondered if uh, this particular, because it is a very close up of the two of them. I wondered if this was like um, done in uh, some reshoots, just like next to a uh, pot plant somewhere. <laughs> like, could be because <laughs> it was just very like, oh look over there. <laughs> then, yeah, you're right. I, for some reason, that I never really noticed that, but that is super weird. It's almost like they used uh, the footage from before that somebody said action. Before the director said action. Yeah, absolutely. Just, yeah. The actors were just sort of standing there waiting for, for him to say action. And it's like they just went ahead and used that footage. I wonder if at one of the edits, when they were looking at it, someone was like, this guy couldn't have got to the dinghy in that time. Add, add a bit of extra filler in. <laughs> Could be, yeah. Yeah. Could be. So yeah, then they're going through the jungle on their own. And they're approached by uh, some of the hun- native hunters, which look pretty cool in all of their makeup. And they've got their uh, traditional weapons and things. But obviously there's a language barrier between them. So it looks like they're basically being kidnapped. So they offer them George's watch and Susan's Polaroid camera. But then the rest of the village joins them as well. And it's revealed that, you know, they're not they're not in any danger. They've just uh, come to see who they are. Which this scene feels like, I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this scene in movies and TV shows. Like, show them your watch. A yeah. camera, a, cam- a flash a flash from a camera, the things that, that you know, uh, freak out the natives. It feels very, uh, this one feels like, boy, we've seen this a million times. Yeah, and then you've got your Indiana Jones bit where they try some of the natives' food and it's <laughs> right. gross kind of thing. It's very... I've I've seen this done a lot worse than this though. I think True. Um, there's there's a sympathy between both sides which works quite well because I think a lot of the time you can end up where you know the Americans are like ew this is gross and it's yeah. everything's you know it, everything can be too much but it's it's done quite sympathetically. I will um, tell you on a personal anecdote that this is totally random but I saw the movie in the theaters when I was so I was 15 when it came out. Oh, cool! And I, th- I thought the line of dialogue about so George says this is this is craparama. Oh yeah, I'd written that down. Thing. I thought that was hilarious when I was <laughs> when I was a fifteen year old. I was pretty easy to please, obviously, but I thought that was just the height of comedy. No, I put that as well. I wrote it down. Absolute <laughs> craparama. But I think I was laughing because it was such a cheesy thing to say. <laughs> it is. It really in, is. In hindsight, and, yeah. <laughs> And again, it's more of a that's more of a statement of how easy I, of an of a laugh I was when I was a kid, when I was fifteen. It didn't take much for me. To it's laugh, funny. But. It's funny to have a character in a Disney film that 
at one point he'll shout bitch at you, but then he next he'll say craparama. <laughs> like... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> maybe I thought it was funny, and maybe it was the deadpan delivery <laughs> that I, I guess that made it funny for me. <laughs> it's that thing as well as like saying it bluntly to a person you know doesn't have a clue what you're saying back, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, and then um, over the <laughs> evening they uh, have a big uh, dance party. They're all doing some traditional dancing. This is one of the weird parts. This part's really weird because they they drink the stuff. I guess they I guess there's some sort of hallucinogenic quality yeah. to the thing they drink, and then they stand up and everybody's gone. Because Susan's like George, I feel really strange, and then yeah, they, he agrees, and suddenly everybody disappears. Um, but then, I don't know what, how I'm supposed to read that. Is that no. Like, did that really happen? Or is it, is this like, maybe the rest of the movie's a dream from now on. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Maybe that's how it's supposed to be read. Because yeah. the weird thing is, yeah, as you say, they all disappear. Uh, George and Susan kind of look around, say, I think Susan even says they all disappeared, as if we needed to know that, like we can see that. <laughs> um, right. But then they don't really react to it. They just kind yeah. of, oh, well, let's put up our tent and go to bed. It's all... Yeah. Very weird, um, and the fact that the not to no, not to spoil what's happening going to happen in a minute, but the fact that there's something to me that the fact that we are now going to start seeing evidence of dinosaurs, yeah, almost to me the connection between the tribe giving them a thing to drink, they clearly know that there's there's something they're going to hallucinate or that there's some kind of drug in it or something. I think, and then. The dinosaurs show up. It almost feels to me like they were doing it on purpose. It almost feels mm. like the natives were saying, drink this and you're going to meet the... There's a weird connection to it. I don't know. This part of the movie I always thought was really odd because yeah, the juxtaposition of those two ideas makes my brain want to relate them together, but I actually think they're supposed to be totally unrelated. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Know. Yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll have to make our own cut with it. Just move, <laughs> yeah. Cuts that like two second scene out, and then the film. Yeah, yeah, it's very different. But they they get the camp set up, and George is trying to go in for uh, a bit of a rummage. To you know, he's 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 desperate to get these babies sorted. Uh, <laughs> to which Susan kind of a bit of, of a rummage. Is that what you said? <laughs> a bit of a rummage. Yeah, that's that's a, uh, great, that's a that's very a great... British thing to say. Oh, I like that. We say we have rummage sales out here. Oh right, yeah. Which is like a garage sale or like a yard sale. We yeah. call them a rummage sale, but that's a totally different meaning. Than, <laughs> uh, where are you from? Well, yeah, rummaging, you know, you've got to rifle through. You've got to search for what you yes. know what's going on. So yeah, yeah, that's a bit of a rummage. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So Susan says that you know the natives might be outside, so let's not. And George. Again, in a Disney movie, well, they can watch. <laughs> right. Um, and at this point, I just wrote that um, this film is not at all what I was expecting from a movie about an animatronic dinosaur at this <laughs> point. like Everything leading up to it is going in ways that I wasn't expecting. Um, yeah. And then as they're trying to have a rummage, there's a literal rumble in the jungle um, <laughs> because there's an earthquake or what they what they think must be an earthquake. Um, and then obviously Susan's not in the mood anymore, right. um, if she ever was. Um, and with that, bron- a brontosaurus eats their tent whilst they're in it. <laughs> yes. It's interesting that we kind of, in a lot of films of this kind of ilk where, you know, you're searching for a mythical creature or something like that, you tend to see like 
a lot of physical evidence before you, you know, you might see a footprint, you might see this, that, and the other. I mean, they they do see that there's kind of a trail through the jungle, but it's it doesn't build up to you seeing this brontosaurus. Then sudden suddenly it's there, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then we cut back to uh, Mister Downton Abbey, who's on, on a boat down the river with the army who are bullying him. The colonel's excuse is that basically boils down to boys will be boys. So it's all very uh, non-woke, this bit. (laughs) And then the the army guys are literally just throwing coconuts in the air and shooting them. But, you know, so we can see that this isn't the most well put together of of, uh, militias. So I know the uh, I know the man who was the unit publicist on this film. All right. Uh, he still works at Disney Animation. He's kind of now he's sort of a, a historian, um, deals with that kind of stuff. Um, but he was the so he was actually on the he was on location with the with the crew when wow. they were filming this movie, and he said that uh, he got to know Patrick McGowan, the the bad guy, very very well. This is just sort of a sad thing, but he said Patrick McGowan was really really excited about this movie. And apparently, McGowan's feeling was that they were basically making the next ET because it's a it's about a little you know like it's about well, a yeah I can kind see of that. critter it, it very much in that vein and he's sort of you know he's the bad guy that's after the ET or in this case the dinosaur but then I guess uh, as it became clear to him what how the movie was shaping up I guess um, he got really despondent and apparently. Uh, fell off the wagon and started drinking again. Oh, um, wow. Because he was, I guess he had had some drinking issues, but yeah. was, unfortunately the movie kind of kind of uh, messed him up. Not to be dark, I just thought, <laughs> I sh- I thought I'd share that anecdote. It's just sort of interesting. Well, yeah, that is that is quite uh, quite an interesting thing to bring up, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like the shooting of the film was, was quite miserable. So, <laughs> um I mean, it's all yeah, because it's it's pretty much all done on location, isn't it? It's it's, it's yeah. clearly, if not in Africa, it's. Do do you know if it was all? In, they, in yes, Africa? they did go to location to the Ivory Coast um, cool. and shoot it there. So points Everyone, for that because yeah. a lot of Disney films of this time were all sh- sound stages and backlots and matte painting. So I I you know you got to give them, uh, you got to give them credit for that. Mm. Um, Apparently, what I've heard though is that the the head of the studio at the time, his name is Tom Wilhite. He was telling them, you know, you might not want to go all the way on location, like go on location, <laughs> but maybe not to Africa because I think it's only going to be miserable. And sure enough, it kind of, I guess, it kind of came true. Um, well, yeah, they could have done it on the back of the Jungle Cruise. You know, that would have saved a good <laughs> good lot of money, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. In fact, there's a couple shots I'd swear look like. They must have. They must have done like uh, some second unit stuff, maybe on the Disney lot and sound stages. Yeah, maybe that's where few... our shot from earlier was. <laughs> yeah, could be. Could be. Yeah. They follow the Brontosaurus that's run off with their tent to a clearing, um, and they see. You know, they get the full reveal of the of the dinosaur, and so obviously they try to take some photos of it. And at this point, the music kicks up like to number 11 like the, I, it's one of these films where the music is kind of just very much in the background you don't notice it until suddenly in this scene it's like every musician was trying to do a solo at once like <laughs> yeah that's working pretty hard <laughs> and it's yeah it's it's 
it's passable, but it's it's not Jurassic Park score. <laughs> I have to say, also, I think like ju- looking at all the all the effect shots or all the animatronic shots of the dinosaurs with throughout the movie, this, these opening shots of the the wide shots of the brontosaurus are actually not bad. I don't know no. what you think about. No, them, I but... I agree. Yeah, um, it's uh, as soon as we get close up, it's when things yeah. don't look. Quite as interesting as good. No, sorry. but this stuff looks like soundstage work to me. The this Barnosaurus stuff. I don't know if it is, but it sure looks like it. Uh, it's fair enough, I think, for the isn't it for the for the big effect shots, especially when you've got all these uh, these big outfits to actually. It's probably better to do it on a soundstage yeah. where you a bit of a more controlled environment more than anything, isn't it? So right, we can yeah. understand. We'll let them off for that. Oh yeah! Um, oh yeah! Totally. And yeah, and by the end of this sequence, we've seen basically there's two adults and one hatchling, as they put it. And as you say, the the the, the long shots are quite impressive. Um, but when we get, especially with the little baby, when you get close up, you see that it's not a very detailed model, really. Yeah. Um, and especially with it being a basic, you know, it's a character in the film. So it does get, it's quite cartoonish almost, like. Especially the eyes; it's got very big, kind of expressive eyes. Um, and yeah, we, yeah. See, as you said earlier, we see the baby playing with a butterfly, and it feels like suddenly we're in a completely we, we've switched to a different movie because yeah. it does suddenly feel quite cartoonish when you mm-hmm. see it. And and it's interesting that you said about ET and them thinking that they were filming the next ET because that's a really interesting juxtaposition because. The ET model is so much more detailed and has yeah. has much more, de- you know, detailed movement compared to this. <laughs> yeah, just the articulation in the face on ET is, you know, and that's that was what four years before this movie. Yeah, uh, but but boy, this one and and you know the mouth is just like a flat. It's just flapping. There's yeah. No, Articulate. I mean, and maybe part of it is because of the head structure of a dinosaur is a lot different from ET, where it's a little more, a little more human esque. But um, this ends up looking so muppety. Yeah. Uh, with the mouth just kind of flapping open, and the eyes are so dead, and it's really unfortunate because, uh, well, as you said, this is the title. <laughs> this is the title of the movie. It's the whole point of making the film. Yeah. Yeah, it's really underwhelming. But you know, they... I also I respect. I get it. I get it. We all have limitations <laughs> and we don't, we all don't have the, most of the time you don't have the tools that you really wish you had to make what you have to make. Yeah. So I completely understand. That, they know. were shooting for ET, but they ended up rather more like Mac and me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, the, yeah. the, the baby Brontosaurus, especially facially, it kind of reminded me of the, um, the suits for the live action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Yeah, because it's, yeah. it's very the teeth. yeah, it's got similar teeth. It's same kind of bug eye kind of look, um, kind yes. of kind of cartoony. But yeah, that's that's what I just kept being reminded of. Little fact for you, I didn't know if you knew, but in they weren't called Ninja Turtles in the UK. No, they were called Hero Turtles because uh, the word ninja was considered too violent, and that no English kid would know what a ninja was. So, so Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles? Yeah, and we had the... Even the theme uh, tune had different lyrics and everything because of it. Ah, 
Interesting. I did not know that. They're called Ninja Turtles now, but yeah, back in the... Oh, they are? Yeah, they, they've gone back to it these days, but um, oh. for the first run of the TV show, it was called Hero Turtles over here. Hmm. Right. Very interesting. Yeah. Where were we? <laughs> So they plan to capture the uh, little hatchling and they decide that they're going to lure it with some fruit, which they get George to collect. And he swings from the tree on a vine and refers to himself as George of the Jungle, uh, which I believe is a Disney property, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> so they didn't have to get I the, think rights they for that. the rights to it. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, the Brendan Fraser movie, that's that's Disney, isn't it? Yeah. I don't yeah. think the original cartoon was, but that was. Uh... Jay Ward, I think, but yeah. I used to really love George of the Jungle as a kid, so yeah. uh, I'm looking yeah. forward to revisiting that at some point on the podcast. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, the <laughs> they put all this fruit down, and um, again, like showing a kind of a limitation of the models. There's a very, it's very well shot to show to make them look like they're eating when they're just miming eating near a pile of some <laughs> fruit, like. Yeah. There's not much munching going on. Um, and then George and Susan are having a wash in the river and the baby uh, comes up a bit, like, <laughs> a bit like the Loch Ness Monster coming out of the water. And they, and again, it's kind of quite, quite a playful bit, kind of quite twee, quite childish. <laughs> yeah. And that's when they put the tracker on him and they yeah. feed it. Um, I guess they had somebody in that suit in the water. Well, yeah, there must have been. So, yeah, unless it was just a puppet head or something, something yeah. like on all those lines. Yeah. yeah, it kind of reminded me of the trash compactor scene in uh, <laughs> Star Wars. Yeah, <laughs> and it just popping up. Um, right. I really liked in this bit because Susan has a line which kind of is almost an. It feels almost like a added excuse for what the puppet looks like because she says, "Isn't it skin nice? I thought it would be more scaly." <laughs> and I thought, you know yeah. what, Susan? So did I. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think it would be foam latex. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think when I push it, it goes in as if it's hollow. What's that about? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess the that was another thing that I've been I've heard from a few folks is that you know they tested out the the dinosaur, all those like like in that making of that that you were talking about earlier on YouTube. Uh, they tested all the dinosaur puppets out obviously here in Burbank on the studio lot but then when they actually got them to Africa it was a whole different ball game yeah and suddenly the 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 animatronics weren't working and they were breaking down all the time and things were and then I think there was also the realization of oh this is what they look like in natural light I don't know how (laughs) much like I don't know how much lighting testing they really did out in the it may have just and I'm I'm I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. I don't mean it to be rude to those people, but it almost, from what I've gathered, it almost sounds like they, they just sort of, they, 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 the dinosaurs only lived in the sound stages and they just sort of worked with them there. Yeah. And they didn't necessarily do any, any exterior tests. So that when they got them to, to Africa, it was just like a, a completely different thing. Well, I, I actually, when I was watching it, I was thinking about, cause there's a heck of a lot of sequences that take place on a sandy beach. And I thought, you know, to be having all these animatronics and these, uh, you know, these really expensive equipment around what you can see is very wet sand the whole time. I was like, this is, 
that's ballsy. That's brave. Like, to... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sure they had plenty of malfunctions that uh, we didn't get to see. Um, So then the bad guys arrive, as bad guys are wont to do, um, and they tranquilize one of the the big dinosaurs, um, and the other big one gets uh, pissed off, and so the army shoot it dead. Which, again, wasn't wasn't really expecting, but I mean, you know, it's kind of Bambi's mum all over again. And uh, there's a big fight. Everybody scrambles and disappears. Um, and so we're left with one dead, one tranked. And uh, Baby obviously is trying to get back to his mother, but Susan and George are trying to keep him hidden whilst the bad guys are still there. Uh, and- just a quick, this is for me also because I'm a, I'm a huge Indiana Jones fan. Right. Uh, one, one of the uh, military guys is, from, is in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, right. Okay. He's... Uh, if you're familiar with that movie, towards the end when they're on the submarine, he's the one that says, I can't find Dr. Jones anywhere. Or, I can't find Dr. Jones, Captain. I've looked everywhere. And then he goes, he's there! And he points. And that's when Indiana Jones climbs up on the on the submarine, if you're familiar with that part of the movie. Anyways. Me and Chris have said on the podcast a few times that, weirdly, um, 80s movies is our blind spot when it comes to films. Uh, okay. Weirdly. My parents... Yeah. I have very strange parents that don't have much uh, interest in anything to do with pop culture. So um, Uh. I was never brought up on film. So Hmm. basically my entire childhood was just spent watching Disney VHSs. So so anything like uh, the Goonies and Indiana Jones is all stuff that I've had to watch later on. So I'm not as up on them as I should be. Uh, Except for we had um, The Last Crusade we had taped off the TV. I used to, oh yeah, yeah. I used to love that one. I, I can tell you about that one, you know, inside out, back to front. But that's the only one. Yeah, cool. <laughs> well, I, I just thought I would bring that up just because. Yeah. You can cut it out if you don't. No, it's good. <laughs> you're you're very knowledgeable about this film. You're more knowledgeable than we are usually. So that's you, you, <laughs> you're you've been an asset so far. Thank you very oh, cool. much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Happy to. <laughs> So yeah, George causes a diversion and basically gets karate chopped to the <laughs> yeah. ground. And then Susan runs in shouting, no, and then, you know, the army guys. Uh, suddenly, then the natives turn up and start shooting. So everybody's running around like mad people at this point. Good bit of action going on. Um, and they've managed to run away, Susan, George. Uh, of the jungle and baby (laughs) they escape Um, and then the baddies plan is that they're going to transport the the tranquilized dino back to their dig site by the river and later uh, baby returns to the the scene once they've left and this was a bit of a full-on shot that i wasn't expecting again where the baby returns and there's vultures eating the corpse of their dead parents Yeah, it's um, grim. And then, if this wasn't cartoony enough as it is, the baby literally cries tears whilst looking at its dead parent. Uh, yeah. I was a bit... Right, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's a... It's and a, I wonder if... Would we have believed it even if the animatronics had been a little bit better? Maybe we would have even been okay with the, with the tears and all that, but it's unfortunate yeah. because... It's really tough to pull off that kind of emotion <laughs> with, um, <laughs> with a puppet with no articulation. Yeah, I mean it's it's 
it's passable, but it's almost a hand puppet, that head. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> Agreed. Because I think, like, obviously with Jurassic Park, when they made that, they did a lot of, you know, they would have the CGI for the most part, but when you needed to be close up, they would have those more detailed puppets, those those yeah. puppets that were purpose built, you know, for maybe a single shot. Whereas you, I, it doesn't look like that's what's going on here. I think it's an all-purpose, right. one-size-fits-all dinosaur that does for everything. And it, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's where they kind of went a bit wrong there. Um, yeah. so they get back to their camp. Uh, Susan and George. Uh, luckily, the radio's still working. Get some tidy whities. Oh yes. Oh, that's it. Yeah, T- uh, baby goes rummaging through the bags, um, and this is when Susan has the plan. If we catch baby and uh, we manage to beat Eric back to the camp, the mainland, this could be their discovery. And this is the point where I was like, well, it's never a good look for the good guys to have the same plan as the bad guys at this point. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because, uh, yeah, the only difference between her plan and the bad guy's plan is that, you know, the bad guys have stolen her win, essentially. <laughs> right. So, anyway, then the Brontosaurus, we get, yeah, as you say, we've got a shot of Brontosaurus versus Tiny Monkey, which I thought would have made a good <laughs> good spin-off film. Yeah, uh, I like that. There's all, throughout the film, there's these little shots of the Brontosaurus kind of fitting in with the environment and interacting with various animals isn't it yeah yeah trying to kind of place it in the in the real location yeah and then they use a sound recording of mum to trap the baby in their tent and um, but as they're doing it uh, george gets dragged into a river and they get that baby's head stuck in a tree branch uh, yeah so it kind of is a bit odd that you know the the in the very next scene with the baby the baby still trusts them, even though he's they've tried to kidnap him, which I thought was a bit weird. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's true. Because yeah, it feels like something's been left on the editing room floor. Because from yeah, from this scene where they get their head stuck, the baddies you see them rowing the tranquilized dinosaur down river, and there's a mention of there being too much tranquilizer being used. Then yeah, we go from there we then go back to the night where the baby's just uh, laid outside their tents asleep not yeah. not tethered not tied down in any way it's just staying with them and it, yeah it just feels like there was a scene missing where you know trust had to be rebuilt or or something right yeah good point then because the baby's sad it comes into the tent and sleeps between them so uh this is the first uh the first ever use of a brontosaurus as a cock blocker in a in a film <laughs> that i'm aware of anyway yeah <laughs> i think you're probably right <laughs> we can google that at some point but <laughs> well i don't know if i want to see the results to be honest <laughs> <laughs> then the very next but it is uh i mean again it's like for a disney movie all this talk of now granted they're married so it's okay but all this it's a lot of talk of sleeping together and that's kind of i mean that's not really discussed much in 
up to this point in Disney movies, up to this point in Disney history. It, yeah, the, it's a very horny film for what it is. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the next day uh, we get a montage of George getting into Pratt Falls. So again, we're, we're going back to the kind of more child-friendly elements. Uh, we, yeah. we see him get kicked in the balls, stung by wasps. His trousers get ripped. I'm sorry. No, sorry. His pants get ripped. Sorry, man. Get the lingo. <laughs> That's okay. Get the lingo right. 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 <laughs> and then um, as Susan is applying ointment to his wasp stings, they finally get down to some shagging. And she literally, yes. you know, we see her taking all the top off and her bra gets unhooked and everything. So yeah. I almost see a bit of side boob. I was very surprised. <laughs> right. And then baby, this bit was really weird because the baby sees them kissing, so then comes in to kiss George whilst they're trying to shag out in the open next to a brontosaurus. Right. And (laughs) not at all what I was expecting from this film. (laughs) And then, (laughs) and then whilst they're shagging. The baby pisses off into the jungle, <laughs> and, I, and yeah. I, I thought it was really interesting because kind of everything that happens after this point, uh, all the dangers that everybody gets into are basically because they stopped their expedition to have a shag. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Because if they hadn't, then they wouldn't have lost the baby, and what That's what follows point. would never have happened. Because maybe it would have been a happy ending or it would have been a we wouldn't have had all that fighting that comes so that's the moral of the story if you're ever out in the african jungle searching for a brontosaurus whatever you do do not have sex that's right (laughs) that's exactly right so obviously and then it cuts straight to after sex as they're putting their clothes on and then they suddenly realize (laughs) that the baby's missing and so they go searching for him then there's a shot of the night time of them running around shouting the baby's name. Then yeah. then the very next shot is the daytime and it's taken until the next day to remember that they have a tracking device on the baby, which they could have been using. <laughs> right. <laughs> they find Eric's camp and decide that they've got to try and help the mum, but they get caught in the process. Um, and we see the uh, dinosaur getting tranked again. An interesting note from this is we then see, obviously earlier in the film, they took a helicopter. Then we had the uh, river plane, the seaplane. Then we've got another helicopter, which is an, a military mm-hmm. helicopter. That's that's quite a big budget just being used on yeah. aviation equipment. Um, yeah, that's true. We had this with another film. I can't... Uh, which one was it? Oh, it was Meet the Deedles. That had, considering how not very big budget it it seemed like a not very expensive film they had two planes uh, two helicopters in that as well yeah they seemed like they were really i mean they this was the ambition for this film was definitely uh like they wanted it to be a big deal well yeah that's it you can see where all the money's gone like it looks yeah and and especially like because it's all on location the sets and everything look pretty decent the uh cinematographer was uh was a a colleague of Stanley Kubrick's. All right. I believe he, I believe he shot uh, Barry Lyndon and it's a Clockwork Orange something. He worked on a bunch of wow of uh, Kubrick films. So yeah, I mean, I mean, it's very competent. The apart from that one shot I mentioned earlier, um, 
yeah, yeah visually the, it it looks quite good this film um it it's the kind of competent editing that you just don't notice like nothing there's there's nothing that's particularly standing out but in a good way right or or that's why i thought anyway um yeah apparently too i'm trying to remember what uh so my friend uh who is the unit publicist his name's howard green I'm trying to remember what he was telling me but i'm pretty sure he said that um this this prop of the dinosaur on the on the barge that they're sailing down the river the oh big yeah, yeah the big one brontosaurus was i guess <laughs> people there were people that actually didn't know they were filming the movie and they saw this actually floating <laughs> down the river and it did cause quite a stir in the uh, surrounding villages um, to see a giant brontosaurus being carted down the river. Well, again, if, you, if you're if seeing this from the river edge, it would look pretty decent. It's just, again, when you see it yeah. close up that it's it's not as good. So, God, right, I can imagine right. that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, Eric's read Susan's notes because they've be, they've been held captive. So he knows that about baby, um, and says that you're going to help him, uh, help me catch this baby. And Susan cries, but I'm like, well, this was your plan anyway. It's just a different person that's <laughs> that's capturing it. So, don't, yeah, I suppose they they would use different means, I guess. But yeah, that's true. Then Downton Abbey comes in and says that the the big dinosaur's heartbeat's getting weak because of all the tranquilizers, and he's kind of. At this point, he says, you know, what are we doing? He's kind of showing a change of heart, maybe. Um, yes. But this doesn't really go anywhere, because I thought later on in the film he might change sides, but he, but he doesn't. Yeah, you're right, he doesn't. They do seem like they're heading that way. Eric, the bad guy, he kills um, the general um, and frames the good guys so that... Oh, I can't remember why. <laughs> I'm sure there was a reason. Uh, yeah, I can't either. Sorry. <laughs> just maybe it's just because he's a bad guy. Uh, Eric then tells the new general that Susan and George are the CIA, and they know that the whereabouts of um, CIA gold that's buried in the jungle, which they need to then find. And I was like, "This is we've definitely crossed into proper Disney villain territory here." Like, the, <laughs> yeah, it's the most cartoony yeah. dialogue you can think of. Yeah, we're in the helicopter tracking the uh, the other brontosaurus. Then we get a brontosaurus versus tortoise shot. Uh, again, a spin-off I would much rather have seen. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're just interacting with the tortoise. Um, right. Then the army gets mad when they realise that they're chasing another dinosaur and not gold. They try to tranquilise it and there's a bit of commotion here, a bit of action where they're all fighting in the helicopter, which is pretty... pretty standard stuff pretty competent i thought the, the action yeah i i really did quite enjoy all of the action beats in this to be fair yeah except unfortunately the the baby dinosaur running away from the helicopter is a little awkward but, um... <laughs> yeah when you're a guy on all fours trying to run away it, yeah. it's kind of obvious there's a i think a, a lot of times i know when you do a lot of kaiju stuff normally what what tends to be the practice is to then slow down the footage a little bit. So it gives uh-huh. a weight to a lot of the shots, but there isn't any of that, especially with the baby. Mm. So anytime the baby moves with any kind of speed or excitement, there's a very obvious bounce to it. Yeah. And it doesn't the head sort of, you could see the head kind of bobbing back. And forth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's too bad. Susan and George run away. They, 
escape into a cave full of uh, Costco Halloween webs, like just everywhere. <laughs> Which I it has to be on, has to be on sound stages. At the, <laughs> yeah, at the, at the lot. I could be wrong, but it sure looks like sound stage stuff. Yeah, I I assumed at this point that they'd run into the cave as a kind of means to block the tracker. But then the baddies just instantly go straight into the cave after them, so that obviously didn't work. Right. Um, and there's no. there's bats in the cave, which I think I wasn't sure, but they did look like they had rather feathery tails to me. Um, <laughs> again, could have Costco Costco bats also. <laughs> well, maybe if it was done on the back lot, maybe there was just someone. Uh, maybe there were some birds just living in the uh, scenery that they just <laughs> in the, shook in a broom at. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, they fall down a waterfall. So there's a bit of peril there, but they're all fine. Baby runs off because he uh, sees the mum on the raft. So then the baddies manage to get hold of baby. Uh, and Susan gets quite defeated and sort of says, you know, it's all over now, uh, but at least the baby's going to be alive. Eric, the bad guy, has a brilliant kind of incredibly British moment with a megaphone where he's just sort of says, oh, well, you know, it's all better for science, isn't it, that we're doing this? Take <laughs> take care, everybody. See you later. Goodbye. Uh, <laughs> I was just like, yep, yeah, that's, that's spot on. Um, it's, it's very, yeah. This guy knows what he's, what he's out for. He knows he's the bad guy and he's not going to apologize for it. And I, I do like him as a, yeah. as a villain. Um, right. He's not very believable. He's not very realistic, but he's he's good. Then we go. We have another campfire scene, um, and Susan kind. There's this bit of dialogue I really did not understand because, and I think I've I, I had to listen to it a couple of times, and I think I got it right. But Susan says, "I think I was starting to believe we were her parents," and then mm-hmm. George's reply is, "I didn't take that many drugs in college." <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I, I'm. There's multiple ways he could have meant that, but uh, I'm not quite sure which, what they were. <laughs> yeah, I said I didn't take enough drugs to believe. Yeah. Like to, for my brain to go that I would believe that the baby thought we were their parents or that I didn't take enough drugs to actually father a <laughs> Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and then... Um, the next day, the native chief um, leads them to uh, Captain Panaka, who's turned up fresh as a daisy after the Battle right. of Naboo. <laughs> and uh, <Yep>. <laughs> and they... No problem. We reprise our catchphrase. We do. Yeah. And uh, we get the dino back to the harbour. The bad guys do. The harbour at the, the proper town. Uh, Monarch of the Glen gives baby some more morphine and uh, there's a fire that we then find out has been started by George who set the whole fucking harbour on fire (laughs) which uh, yeah I was a bit shocked at like it's quite a oh you know George doesn't doesn't mess around no it's only Africa it doesn't matter just burn it (laughs) that's right a very very American view of things it's all in, in. It's all for science. <laughs> uh, but then it turns out, yeah, the natives have come with them for a big bat- final battle, which is again this this whole action scene. I mean, it's very eighties. You've got your motorbikes going. You've got your uh, yeah. people on fire. You've got people jumping all over the place. Um, a really good little bit with the chief who gets a semi-automatic to fire. 
Yeah. I have to say that guy's kind of funny. I mean, at least they're, I, I, he's pretty stereotypical, but the casting of that, of that chief was, he's kind of a funny guy. I guess yeah. He was, he's sort of enjoyable. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the moment of a native with a gun is sort of also kind of, I guess that's a bit of a cliche, but yeah. Um, some of the story beats are a bit sort of stereotypical, um, but at the yeah. same time, I think like the acting and the casting and the look of things is 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 quite sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, especially the scenes with the native village. Um, do you know much about? Because that's one thing I wanted to know was what percentage of these are are sort of professional actors and what percentage are are pretty much just you know filming on on site. Yeah, I haven't. I you know I didn't. I didn't ask the producer that question. I know the guy who plays the chief Sifu. He is in one other movie, just one other movie. So I don't know. If, that doesn't mean he's a professional actor. No, either, I guess. yeah. They, they may have just found him, but I, I would guess that they're probably. Well, I don't know. It's a really good question. I should see if I can find out the answer to that. I wish I. I don't really know the answer. Well, that but, you'll have to get that in your book. <laughs> I will. I will. Yeah, and and then and then it'll be documented for, forever. <laughs> yeah, there was one interesting story. Uh, if I can digress just for a second, absolutely. That the producer told me. Um, uh, I'm not sure which location it was, but they were uh, they were filming by. Uh, let's see. When is? I'm sorry. Checking my notes. One of the locations they were filming. Uh, they were there for a couple of days, and they. In the tree, in a tree above them, was a huge green mamba snake Ooh. that just sat sat there the whole time and just sort of watched them film it. And um, they had a um, sorry, just checking my notes again. They had a, a a doctor, like a consultant, a doctor on the set. Uh, not a consultant, but like you know, a doctor in case anything went wrong. Yeah, who I guess had not been, who'd sort of been in, who, who'd sort of been staying in the village for a while where they were all based. But this particular day, he happened to come out to the, to shoot it, to the set, to the location. And he saw the snake and he said, I can't, I can't let you guys keep filming with that snake up there because it's just a, it's a hazard. Yeah. So, so somebody said, okay. And they climbed up the tree with a machete and chopped its head off. (laughs) And all the locals that were on the crew were like, no, 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 no. That's bad luck. That's bad luck. And sure enough, like, uh, this is a quote from the producer within literally two hours, it starts to rain. And I don't mean just rain. I mean, rain, he said, and they had calculated the chance of rain in this month of February as zero. Wow. The month they were filming. <laughs> what? So, That's uh, weird. so maybe that was a bad omen for the, I don't know when in the shoot that was. Spooky. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I guess they should, never should have chopped the head off that snake, but. See, they would never have had that trouble if they filmed in the Jungle Cruise. (laughs) (laughs) No, absolutely not. (laughs) Yeah, so, yeah, this final action sequence, again, as I say, really liked it. Very stereotypical of the time. Except for Mama Brontosaurus finally wakes up and we we get our Godzilla moment. Yeah. And it's pretty, pretty good. I, and... I'm glad they managed to squeeze one in right before the end of the film. Yeah, as I said earlier, yeah. all the action beats in this film just just kind of work. Not they're not the best thing you've ever seen, but they're 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 enough. 
Yeah, they're well done, yeah. well staged, well executed. And then in the, one other little thing is that the water tower collapses. And then, you know, we said filming on the Jungle Cruise. For a very split second, I wondered if we were on Catastrophe Canyon at um, MGM <laughs> Studios at this point. Yeah. <laughs> little fun fact, yeah. they still have Catastrophe Canyon at um, the Disney Studios Park in Paris. Oh, do they? Yeah, because we went in 2016 and it was... Uh, it was still there because they've closed it in uh, nice. in Florida, I believe. So they still have a like a tram tour and everything. Or yeah, is it just its own well, isolated. The actual tram tour is pretty pathetic because uh, yeah. <laughs> because obviously it was never at any point a working studio. So right. they have this really over overly long tram tour, but it's just literally a few props that you're looking at. That have been ah. that probably half of them came from uh, MGM Studios and some from other probably. films. I can't even remember. It 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 goes. It bodes well for the fact that I can't remember what props I saw when I was there. <laughs> <laughs> right. But yeah, it takes forever to do all of that bit, and then it, you get to catastrophe catastrophe canyon, which is great, and then you go and yeah. loop again and do more of the bloody props, and it's a bit boring. <laughs> you look at a Herbie, the love bug, or something. Standing, sitting by the side of the road, right? Or something like I was going to say, I'm pretty sure they'll have been a Herbie because they must have had hundreds of those back in the day. <laughs> yeah, that's what they they definitely had one in at MGM for a while. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was a lot of that. It was lots of random vehicles from like films you don't even remember that where the car, you know, like a lot of army vehicles and stuff that could could right. have been on literally anything. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So in all the commotion. Baddies escape in a Land Rover, and they've got the uh, baby strapped in the back. Uh, and then George and Susan chase after them on a on the motorbike, and there is a a crash. The Land Rover ends up on its roof, upside down. And then again, a bit of weird editing. Um, we see uh, Eric's bloody hand flop down onto the ground, which. <laughs> Is kind of your a visual trope of, you know, this guy's dead, but we can't show you the gore. Then, the, right. then straight from that, we cut to seeing him get out of the car. <laughs> right. So yeah, he's okay. He's fine, but I for a, for a moment for a moment I thought he must be dead. Um, but then it turns out that baby's dead. <laughs> right. And so or is he? And the baddie gets saddy because baby's dead. <laughs> uh, yeah. Then. But that's it's all right. What have I done? Yeah. Then Mama turns up and eats the fucker anyway. So, <laughs> so he is now yeah. dead. And then it turns out Baby's alive after all. And we're all suckers because we all thought he was dead. Um, <laughs> and Susan yeah. says, "You know, you don't belong to me." So Baby and Mama run off, and that's and then again, suddenly the end. I yeah. <laughs> it ends very, yeah. very, very abruptly. <laughs> There's not much else to say, I guess. No. I was expecting, like, some kind of epilogue of Susan going back to real life or something and, you know, always having this Cutting memory of their time. Or, or you know, waking up after the hallucinogenic drugs wear off at the campfire. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it just needed something, I thought. Or, or yeah. Um, just some confirmation. The doctor, the doctor handing them their newly born... Baby back in the states or something. <laughs> they're triplets. One of the baby. <laughs> yeah, they're triplets. Or just even some confirmation that they actually managed to get home because basically they've they've blown up that entire village and they're 
for all we know, they're trapped in Africa. <laughs> At least they still have the motorcycle they could ride back to yeah. somewhere, right? So that is the whole plot of this film, Baby, Secret of the Lost Legend. So uh, what a journey we've been on. <laughs> I know, I know. It's to Africa and back. Well, not back. We're um, still in Africa for all we know. That's true, <laughs> yeah. Hopefully back. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, and so I'll, I'll add one kind of interesting final note, if that's okay, in terms of... Uh, it's very interesting... <laughs> So we've just seen this film and, you know, it is what it is. And there's actually a really interesting way that it factors into the history of the studio. So the producer of the film, his name's Jonathan Taplin. He, uh, so when he got to Disney, he he was hired to produce this film. So he came to Disney and the way Disney was dealt, the way that they had operated up to to that point was they had staff producers. They never hired outside producers. Everybody was all in-house and they were all producers that had been there in various capacities since Walt was still alive. Yeah. Um, and and running the studio was a man named Ron Miller, who was Walt Disney's son-in-law. Yeah. And he was the CEO of the company. So Jonathan Taplin, when he got to Disney, he every afternoon he saw what was Ron Miller's, apparently Ron Miller's routine, which was for about two or three hours, he and his staff producers would just sit on a table in the commissary and play poker. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Disney studio continued to just go down the tubes. They, they got movies that were constantly failing. They had ambitious projects like Tron or, you know, something wicked this way comes and none of them were hitting. And Jonathan Taplin couldn't believe that like with, with that being the, where the company's going, these guys have time to just sit there and play poker. Yeah. So this made him very frustrated um so he gathered up some financial somehow he had access to financial um some financial statements and things that the company for the company at the time and he took them to this investment company called the bass brothers which are which were in um they're located in fort worth texas and i don't understand a lot about stock stuff and investment stuff and all that so i'll sort of shorthand it but basically he went to this guy and said this company is seriously undervalued and something needs to be done to save it because it's going down the tubes. We'll cut to a little while later, and this corporate raider named um, uh, Saul Steinberg decided, I'm going to buy the Disney company and carve it up into pieces and sell it off. So he was going to buy the Disney company, chop off the parks, chop off animation, chop off live action, and and they would become individual entities all to their own. The Disney company as an independent company would never exist anymore. Well, because of Jonathan Taplin, the producer of this movie, because of the the efforts he he had done prior to this with the Bass Brothers, the Bass Brothers were then able to come in and save the company from Saul Steinberg and stop him from buying the company, therefore keeping the Disney company independent which me and then very soon after that Eisner and Katzenberg came in and then the rest is history. But if Jonathan Taplin hadn't come in and seen this and sort of felt that Disney was worth saving, the Disney company as we know it may not have existed. May not That's crazy what it is today. I had no yeah. I had no idea how significant this this particular film was in all of that that was going on behind the scenes because obviously like um yeah, as a Disney fan I'm kind of 
semi-aware of how things were back in the you know behind the scenes uh still need to read yeah. the book disney war because i'm really excited to read that great at book. some point yeah uh it's a great book but yeah i can't believe that's so relevant to this film that's crazy <laughs> Yeah, and I had heard about the that general story that the, the that there were corporate raiders that yeah. wanted to buy up the company and all that, but I didn't know it was this guy. No, wow, <laughs> who spearheaded the effort to save the company? Um, so it's pretty amazing. This this guy, this uh, producer Jonathan Taplin, is a pretty amazing uh, individual. Well, that changes my and, entire uh, view of this film. Like, this is a this is the best Disney film ever. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. So it's, it's you just never know what is going to i don't know it's just it's an interesting story because you just never know what's gonna yeah what the result of things are going to be and sometimes you know maybe the project doesn't end up the way it should or you hoped it would be but there's always something that would made it worth it yeah somebody that you met you know somebody an experience that you had or in this case you know this producer's passion for saving the disney company um there you go amazing right it's crazy it's, yeah so i'm very aware of that we're we're pressed for time today aren't we because uh you've got some meetings to go to later on so yeah we'll have to yeah, we'll have to get this wrapped up pretty quick so if you've got any final thoughts that you want to kind of sum up your experience of re-watching this movie and then we'll get on to some gems yeah uh no i mean that was kind of my big thing <laughs> i was thinking this morning in the car though that uh this movie came out in 85, and I started the Disney Company in 95, so it's kind of odd to think that only 10 years after this movie came out, I became a Disney employee. I don't <laughs> know. At the time at the time you're going through it, you know, 10 years seems like a lot, and then when you now, you know, how many ever years later, 25 years later, I look back on it, I think 10 years is not a lot, and between Baby and working at the studio was only 10 years. Anyways, that's my final thought. <laughs> <laughs> okay so yeah pretty much my final thoughts i'll I, as i say i'll be nice and quick the puppet's pretty shit <laughs> but <laughs> yes, you know what I, at various parts of the film i couldn't tell what my final opinion would be but i feel like <sighs> there's a lot of disparate parts that don't necessarily go together but they all kind of work in their own very peculiar way mm -hmm. it's i kind of loved it <laughs> <laughs> nice which great. i was really not like at certain points i was like what is going on but when you get to the end of the film and you see it as a whole it's just a a very silly dumb action film that also has some very very big issues with tone in terms of it yes. flying from one end to the other, which is something that never really bothers me about films. Like being a Disney Renaissance kid, uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame gets a lot of stick for being, you know, it's it's a silly family film with loads of gargoyles in, and then later on we're talking about <laughs> sex and murder and people are falling into boiling oil and stuff. But <laughs> both right. of those things are entertaining to me, so it doesn't it doesn't bother me that much. So as much as this was crazy and i couldn't believe what i was watching half the time it was absolutely in the best way i really enjoyed this film <laughs> oh great i'm so happy to hear you. so in terms of gems i'm going to give it a seven out of ten because wow it's not as i say 
because it you can see that they're kind of stealing bits from other kind of properties and kind of still not sure where what they are or where they are so it's not i can't give it higher than this but it's a solid seven for me Mm -hmm. great so how many gems would you give it out of ten uh i would say six oh okay I'm going to say six. There's a lot of movies of this time period that I can love, that I sort of love in spite of themselves. (laughs) Um, This one is kind of that, but not as much as some others. So I I would say, I would say it's fine. There's a lot (laughs) lot of movies from this time period are just like, oh, it's fine. It's not great. It's not horrible. It's just fine. Well, it's got... I'll say say six. Well, that gives it a very fine score of uh, 13 out of 20. So I think that's probably right. Um, We start our movie leaderboard afresh last week because we're in a brand new year. So to put it into perspective, we gave the straight story, um, David Lynch film, we gave that 19 out of 20. So I think uh, there's a bit of a stretch there. So we'll see how Baby... Secret of the Lost Legends manages to stand up on our leaderboard as we keep going throughout the year. So, cool. yeah, I won't keep you too long, Steve, because I know you've got, no. you're a very busy guy. Um, I just want to say thank you so, so much for coming on. This has been an absolutely brilliant couple of hours that we've spent chatting. Let all of your mates at work know if they, uh, that we've got this stupid podcast that we do. And if there's, a, <laughs> if any of them have another film that they want to, you know, yeah. Or, or if you ever want to come back, you're you're very more than welcome. Um, oh, I would love is, that. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. It was a real honor. And, and I absolutely... Chris, sorry I missed you. <laughs> I can't wait to read your book as well. Let me know as soon as that's <laughs> uh, that's finished. And um, Yeah, I will. Uh, where can people find you on the internet if they're looking? Uh, on Instagram, I'm at Steve Hat Guy, And uh, Facebook is just... Steve Anderson, but Facebook's kind of boring. So I would just say Instagram, Steve Hat Guy, at Steve Hat Guy on Instagram. And uh, good luck with the rest of your meetings today. And uh, thank you for giving up your lunch break to talk to us. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks, Tim. (laughs) Hey there, folks. It's Tim from the future here. Um, Just realized when I woke up this morning that we forgot to mention what the next movie's going to be. Um, Obviously, it's my choice, uh, especially since Chris isn't here. So since we have now been going for over a year. We, th- I thought it would be a perfect opportunity now to go back and look at an, an alternative version of a film that we've already watched. Um, so we've already done the 1998 version of The Parent Trap. We're going right back to the 60s. We're going to watch the 1961 version of The Parent Trap, the, the original, which I've not seen yet. And also we've got to mention our uh, socials last night as well. We were in a bit of a rush in the end because of Stephen's uh, schedule. You can find us on Twitter at Podwam and we're also on Instagram at Without a Mouse. You can find me on Twitter as well at TimblesRH. If you're one of the 30% of our listeners that listens to us on Apple devices, uh, please make sure you give us a five-star review on iTunes as well. Thanks, guys. Bye. Previously on the We Made This Network. Pick a disc. I think that could definitely be a part of it. I think a big part of it also is um, you have artists like Regina Spector and they're kind of... 
weird coming out of the gate. I'm not sure what a better word is. The, the atypical, where she, you know, Regina Spector is uh, like folk pop or f- post folk pop or whatever she's called this week. Um, she was always that. So I think the biggest reason that she, someone like her and someone like Vanessa Carlton went into different directions is because they were pushed in different directions. Or, um, you know, like you said, A&R seemed to be pigeonholing um, Vanessa Carlton in a way that similar artists never experienced. Observing the pattern. You know, like I said earlier, there would be people who knew about the Observer and would, were, had spotted him, but there would be loads of people who didn't. And so you would have had people like wanting to rewatch the previous three episodes to go, oh, where was he in them? Was he in them? Like, and that's great. That's really cool. Yeah, and that's exactly what I did because I hadn't. I think <laughs> when I go. when I watched it, I I hadn't known that, that the observers were in every episode. So when it was, I think I think it was revealed like uh, in like a news article or something like that after yeah. this episode that had been. I was like, what, really? So I went back <laughs> and watched the three episodes. <laughs> yeah, it's neat. It's a neat idea. Yeah. Make it so. Star Trek Picard podcast. I was the one who started the conversation about the canon because I was curious as to whether or not we can still class Spock's actions at the during the um, in the aftermath of the supernova as canon as something that fits with Picard because I, I was I was convinced that he'd said he'd mentioned the Hobas supernova which is now essentially just disappeared from from canon and it turns out I was wrong with a few things and people you know very politely corrected me and said oh actually no there isn't that so there's yeah, there's every I indication that, I think that might have been a person called Kurt North and I'm not sure it could have been yeah. could have been um, yeah. <laughs> I've never heard of it to be fair to be fair I did look just um, google the script and just check it, make sure it was, it was yeah. right but, um, but, you're, but you're right check out all of these shows on the We Made This podcast network <laughs>